Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the editor in chief of Harvardum. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the January 2019 issue. The featured article this month is titled "Chest to DS2 Vasc and the Intermountain Mortality Risk Scores for Joint Risk Stratification of Dementia Among Atrial Fibrillation Patients" by Bunch et al. from Intermountain Medical Center, Utah. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Moring, can be found at the www.harvardumjournal.com website. The Intermountain Mortality Risk Score is a dynamic measurement of systemic health, comprised of commonly performed blood tests. The authors studied 34,000 female and 39,000 male AF patients. With no history of dementia, chest to DS2 VASC scores were assessed at the time of atrial fibrillation. Patients were further stratified by the intermountain mortality risk score categories of low, moderate, and high risk. The authors found that both chest to DS2 VASC and the intermountain mortality risk scores. Were independently associated with dementia incidence among AF patients. Intermountain mortality risk score further stratified dementia risk among chest 2 DS2 VASC strata, particularly in those with lower chest 2 DS2 VASC scores. These findings made it to better prediction and prevention of dementia in patients with atrial fibrillation. In this issue of the journal, we have also published four device-related articles. Alice et al. from Vanderbilt University wrote an article titled "Feasibility of Left Atrial Appendage Device Closure Following Chronically Failed Surgical Ligation." The authors found that Watchman LAA closure appears feasible in patients with chronically incomplete surgical LAA occlusion. Because incomplete surgical ligation confers an increased stroke risk, the successful Watchman closure of the LAA after failed surgical procedures might be clinically important to prevent stroke in those patients. The next article is titled "Leadless Pacemaker Implantation After Explantation of Infected Conventional Pacemaker Systems" by Berskens et al. from University of Amsterdam. The authors found that either early or late leadless pacemaker placement after infected conventional pacing system explantation is a viable option. This therapy may provide an alternative strategy in the management of device infection, particularly for patients who are pacemaker dependent or have a history of recurrent device infections. A third device article is titled "Defibrillation Testing and Clinical Outcomes After Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Implantation in Patients in Atrial Fibrillation at the Time of Implant: An Analysis from the Simple Trial." While there is no evidence that defibrillation testing increased the occurrence of perioperative stroke, it failed to improve outcomes. Therefore, the authors propose that defibrillation threshold testing should not be performed in patients with atrial fibrillation.
A fourth device article is titled Instance Patterns and Outcomes After Transvenous Cardiac Device Lead Macro Dislodgement. Insights from a Population-Based Study by Chen et al. from Mayo Clinic, Arizona. The median time to diagnosis of this phenomenon was one month. The risk factors for lead dislodgement included female sex and obesity, which are consistent with previous reports. The authors detail several different mechanisms that are responsible for lead dislodgement. This study provides important insights into macroscopic lead dislodgement, although it is limited by the retrospective study design. The remaining articles relate to ablation and electrophysiology. The first one is titled Structural Remodeling and Conduction Velocity Dynamics in a Human Left Atrium, written by Hona Bakish et al. from Barts Heart Center, United Kingdom. The authors found that sites of rate-dependent conduction velocity slowing are predominantly confined to low voltage zones. The resultant conduction velocity heterogeneity may promote driver formation in atrial fibrillation. Conduction velocity restitution is an important factor that determines weight breaks. These findings provide new insights into the reentrant mechanisms sustaining atrial fibrillation. Next up is a paper titled Identification of Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation Subtypes in Over 13,000 Individuals by Weinegger et al. from the Scripps Research Institute, San Diego. The authors conclude that there are two subtypes of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, one they called staccato and the other legato. These subtypes may result from different elements of pathophysiology and disease progression and may confer differing stroke risks. It is also possible that these two subtypes have different mechanisms that require different therapies. Ang Sasra et al. from Soroka University Medical Center, Israel, wrote the following article titled Net Clinical Benefit of Anticoagulant Treatments in Elderly Patients with Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation, Evidence from the Real World. The authors found that the net clinical benefit of oral anticoagulation in the elderly is positive, with the highest benefit in elderly patients treated with warfarin who achieved therapeutic range at least 60% of the time, or received high-dose direct oral anticoagulants. Because the benefits significantly outweigh the risks, oral anticoagulants should not be withheld from elderly patients. The next paper is titled Silent Cerebral Events, Lesions, After Second-Generation Cryo-Balloon Ablation. How Can We Reduce the Risk of Silent Strokes? Written by Miyazaki et al. from Fukui University, Japan. The authors conclude that a significant number of silent cerebral events and lesions were observed after second-generation cryo-balloon ablation procedures. These results suggest that air embolisms 
are the main mechanism of these events, and the injected air volume might determine the lesion type. This article is accompanied by another article titled Techniques for Reducing Air Bubble Intrusion into the Left Atrium During Radiofrequency Caster and Cryo Balloon Ablation Procedures, an ex vivo study with a high resolution camera. Written by Takami et al. from Osaka Saisekai Nakatsu Hospital, Japan. The authors conclude that air bubbles enter the left atrium at specific times during ablation procedures. Techniques such as sheath flushing at slow speeds, temporary cryo balloon inflation before insertion, inserting the Optima caster without an inserter, and avoidance of negative pressure in the left atrium could reduce air bubble intrusion. Yang et al. from Cardiovascular Medical Center of Jiangsu, China, wrote the next article titled An Alternative Undervalve Approach to Ablate Right-Sided Accessory Pathways. The authors conclude that radiofrequency ablation under the tricuspid valve to eliminate right-sided accessory pathway is possible because of the ability to achieve stable contact and accurate ablation of ventricular insertion site. It provides an alternative approach to tough right-sided accessory pathway ablation. Historically, right-sided accessory pathway ablation is associated with a high failure rate. This alternative approach may be useful in, dif in difficult cases. Next up is an article titled, What Have We Learned in the Last 20 Years? A Comparison of a Modern Era Pediatric and Congenital Caster Ablation Registry to Previous Pediatric Ablation Registries. The paper was written by Dubing et al. from Stanford University. The authors conclude that acute success rates and fluoroscopy and procedural times in pediatric ablation all have improved over the last 25 years. These registries play an important role in monitoring quality of care while also highlighting important trends in the evolution of practice over time. Limitations of this registry study is that participation was voluntary and that it is difficult to obtain complete long-term follow-up in these patients. Next up is a paper titled Dynamicity of Hypothermia-Induced J-Waves and uh, the Mechanism by Aizawa et al. Niigata University, Japan. The authors conclude that J-waves in severe hypothermia were augmented after short RR intervals in seven patients as expected for depolarization abnormality, whereas two patients showed bradycardia-dependent augmentation as expected for transient outward current-mediated J-waves. There is an ongoing debate on the mechanism of J-wave syndrome. This paper indicates that both depolarization and repolarization abnormalities may play important roles in the mechanism of J-wave elevation 
during hypothermia. Piccini et al. from Duke University wrote the next article titled Adaptive Servo Ventilation Reduces Atrial Fibrillation Burden in Patients with Heart Failure and Sleep Apnea. This study provides a proof of concept that treatment of sleep apnea with adaptive servo ventilation leads to reduction in AF burden compared with opti- optimal medical therapy alone without an increase in VTVF events. Because obstructive sleep apnea is a very prevalent disease in the general population, these results could have very large public implications. Next up is supraventricular tachycardias, conduction disease, and cardiomyopathy in three families with the same rare variant in TNNI3K by Polisna et al. from Academic Medical Center Amsterdam. The authors conclude that this study corroborates further the causal link between rare genetic variation in TNI3K and this distinct complex phenotype and points to enhanced kinase activity of TNI3K as the underlying pathobiological mechanism. The TNI3K was localized to sarcomeric Z-discs and was shown to interact directly with the thin filament protein troponin 1. This gene may be a novel target for potential therapeutic interventions for cardiomyopathy and arrhythmias. The next article is titled Chronic in Vivo Angiotensin II Administration Differentially Modulates the Slow Delayed Rectifier Channels in Atrial and Ventricular Myocytes by Zankov et al. from Virginia Commonwealth University. The authors conclude that IKS is differentially modulated by chronic in vivo angiotensin II administration between atrial and ventricular myocytes. Other currents remodeled by angiotensin II treatment also contribute to changes in action potentials. These remodeling changes may play a role in the proarrhythmic effects of increased angiotensin II. Assist et al. from Johns Hopkins University wrote the next article titled Minimally Invasive Transtracheocardic Plexus Block for Sympathetic Neuromodulation. The authors studied 12 Yorkshire peaks. They conclude that minimally invasive transtracheal injection of lidocaine into the cardiac plexus blocked the sympathetic response of both the right and left static ganglia. This procedure may extend the benefits of cardiac sympathectomy denervation to those not suitable for surgery. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Chen.